Welcome to another episode of Return on Character podcast with me, Dan Cooper, CEO and founder of Return on Character Investments, where we allocate capital on the basis of the public company CEOs. I'm thrilled to have Kaz Atta with us today. Um, I he is he's a wildly successful uh, and has achieved extraordinary amounts of. Uh, of uh, business success, uh, but the thing that I'm more excited even than your business success to talking to you about is your story. But regardless, welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking some time out to talk to us. Thanks for having me, Dan. Let's talk it's, about a lot of story. Yeah, I want to hear. I want to hear your story because I mean, um, I mean, in a way, it seems like you've got to represent the the traditional notion of the American dream. Uh, that came to America and has achieved extraordinary things. For context, let's just let's give uh, let's tell tell the the audience where you're at today, what you're doing, um, and um, kind of where what you're spending most of your days, and then we'll go backwards and see and trace how you got there. Of course. So let me start how we started this business, right? So I started the business like 12 years ago as a CTO, Chief Technology Officer. So I'm a technology guy. And right. I became CEO 18 months ago, right? To run the company. Now- And the company, I, and the company is, what kind of company is this? Yeah, the company is called Treasure Data. We provide B2B SaaS solutions, like software as a service solution. And our main target is global 2000 companies. So we only work with like large corporations and our product on average costs like half a million a year. So it's not a straight credit card swipe. We're selling to large corporation with this enterprise product, right? And what we do is what it's called CDP, customer data platform. A lot of company right now is Facing this fact that, you know, 60% of customer interactions are now happening in the digital world. This gets tripled after pandemic. So when I talk with a lot of automotive customers, everyone goes to six to seven times to the dealership to make a decision of the car purchase before, but now on average, it's 1.2. So now when you think about how you buy the car, you do a lot of research online in the digital world. And then go to dealership and with that one visit, you have to sell the car, right? So every company on the earth right now has to one, understand the customer by be- better by data and then personalize and make a better sales pitch based on that data, right? So that's what we do. We have a lot of automotive customer, CPG, tobacco companies, beers, hospitals, governments, banks, and insurance companies. So those are using our product to capture billions of people's um, behaviors and activities every single day in real time. And then making decisions on like what product you're selling to who, right? How many many employees at Treasure Data? We have approximately around 650 people across the globe. Wow. And you have offices in other countries all around the world? Yeah. So headquarters is in Silicon Valley, but, uh, you know, three founders come from Japan. So we have approximately around 300 people in Japan. Uh, sorry, uh-huh. in United States, 200 people in Japan. 
know, 50 people in London, another 20 to 30 in India. We also have a development office in Vietnam, and there are some offices and sales offices in, in Korea and some other countries as well. Okay. So, Cass, tell me about how you came to America. Let's, sure. let's go way back. Let's, I want to hear. I want to hear your story. One of the things I, I mean, I read a lot about your company, a lot about your other accomplishments, but I kept on wanting to learn more about you. So, tell us about how you how you showed up here in America. Sure. Yeah, so what happened was when I was a student, I majored in computer science. And at that time, my professor has built the world's fastest supercomputer. Now, is this in America or where? That's in Japan. In Japan, okay. Yeah, so I was born in Japan. I go to University of Tokyo, which is in Japan. Mm -hmm. And then majored in computer science. And my professor built the world's fastest supercomputer. And that's basically half a million computers combined into one system, right? It's just like a gigantic system. And I was a part of the team to build the file system for that supercomputer. File system is the system to store and handle and process lots of data, right? So I experienced how to handle large scale data set. But that supercomputer is only open for government usage or research purposes. But I kind of thought like, okay, everywhere data is exploding, right? So I would like to uh, democratize the access and analysis of data for the world. Kaz, and, what, t- what year was this? Just to give us context, what approximately what? It was around 2010, 11. Okay. Kind of time frame, okay. Right? Mm-hmm. And around that time frame, um, cloud is becoming a bit worse. Like the mobile is becoming something, right? And then because of cloud and mobile, the data was about to explode in the world, <laughs> right? And I came to this idea where, you know, to analyze the data, you had to buy a lot of like hardware and software network appliances and install into the data center, which takes like a year or two just to set it up. And you need a few like computer scientists and PhDs, right? And the idea we had was, why don't we host that data analytics infrastructure into the cloud so that people can easily start analyzing the data. Uh-huh. Right. And that was a really simple idea. And everyone is using the cloud right now. But 12 years ago, when we pitched to the investor, investor is like, okay, who will throw away the data to the cloud? Right. Because people right. don't trust cloud at that time. But right now, I guess everyone is throwing data to the cloud, right? So Kaz, did you decide at some point while you're at university to start a company with some people? And is that what, how did it, how did you go from helping to build this uh, data center to talking to investors? Yeah. So what happened was I was pretty entrepreneurial, meaning my parents was running little pharmacies, right? It's all about family business and making money. And when I was around 15, I was building the shopping cart and commerce site for my parents' business. Okay. And sold yeah. a lot of drugs and make a lot of money as a family, right? And when I was 20, 
I started my own like um, uh, search engine business. So this is my second startup. And I started this company when I was 25. And at that time, you know, I was like, my first startup was software company, but selling only to Japanese market. But when I think about software market, like US is like 60% of software market, versus Japan is only three to 4%. So it's just uh-huh. like a small pond. Uh-huh. I don't want to have a big fish in the big pond, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I was 25, nothing to lose. I couldn't speak any English, but I found this like a co-founder, two co-founders. And Hiro, who is now a chairman of this company, was living in Silicon Valley for five years as a VC. So he's got good connection on the investor side. I had the technical vision. I had another co-founder who can code like crazy, right? So we as a three, uh, you know, co-founder base had a really good synergy between three of us. And, you know, I came to the Valley at 25 and I was nothing, but just started slowly building the business. And now it's more than hundred million dollars. So it's quite a right. <laughs> so wait a minute. You show up and you don't speak a lick of English at all. No, no yeah. English. I had a funny story. So we had a first investor who decided to invest, you know, treasure data, right? Yeah. And meeting looked like went well. You know, I was presenting, you know, Hero, my co-founder was presenting. Hero understand English, of course, but I couldn't. I can speak my part because I had a transcript, but I couldn't understand what he's saying. So this gentleman, Bill Tai, decided to invest, but I missed it. So after the meeting, I talked with my co-founder here and said, well, it looks like meeting went well. What happened? And he's like, what the F are you talking about? <laughs> he decided to invest. And uh, this, uh, yeah, Bill is still laughing about this story. <laughs> <laughs> was he was he your first one. one? Was he the first yeah, investor? He was the first one. Then that Bill was that a legendary VC, so he invested mm-hmm. into this little startup building the telecommunication system called Zoom. So, around that time, he invested into that. He invested into this like a little lady who came from Australia trying to find co-founder and, you know, build just like introduce some people. And then that became this company called Chamba, which is now $30 billion design tools. Right. So Bill has this like amazing instinct on like what to invest and what market more importantly, right. Uh-huh. To invest uh-huh. in. And we were really lucky to have him as a first investor. What was the most challenging period when you first got got started um, in in launching Treasure Data? Yeah, I would say you know we had a uh, lots of how can I say overhead just to come to the states, right? So for us, English was not the native language, so all the co-founders first two years spent almost like a, an hour or 90 minutes every single day for English lesson, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that was one. We had a lot of struggle getting the visa. I mean, coming to this country, just freaking hard. Yeah. Like, you know, there's a lot of 
documents and weights and everything. Right. In fact, like my document was rejected twice and I'm like, okay, can we actually come here? Right. That was that really, really hard. And then, you know, when we started the business and, uh, there were a lot of startup, let's say like, okay, this company was co-founded by ex Google engineer. This, this company is co-founded by ex Stanford grad, right? We're just no one who came from like boring country and I'm like, investors were like, okay, how do you win those guys? Like looks clever, right? In the end, after 10 years, those companies are gone. They're all just couldn't succeed. And I think the biggest um, thing we have done is we just become like customer obsessed, right? We needed to listen to the customer the most than any other competitors we have, right? And uh, that's just like, a, you know, we become really humble and trying to learn visit the customer and trying to make them happy. So that was really, you know, what we have been doing for last 12 years and we'll do another, you know, tens of years for this. You know, I, um, I had a, a business colleague that took a, um, a company called service master to Japan, which, mm-hmm. um, and, and he was the VP and he kind of ran it over there and he was in an office building and he, and reviewing his company's work. Um, and he saw some dirt under a desk and he got on all, all hands, you know, all four hands and knees and was picking up the dirt under the desk. And the CEO of the company came in and couldn't believe, you know, the level of, of service and attention to detail. And, and, um, and it was very consistent with what I understood to be the Japanese culture. How have you taken kind of what I think Japan's better at customer service than almost anybody on an attention to detail? Has that been a benefit for you coming here to America and really being uh, oriented around customers at a, at a level that maybe others aren't? Yeah, I think there's some like a culture benefit to it. And then of course, like pros and cons, right? Yeah. I think we come from the country where, you know, customer is God, right? Right. My parents always, you know, told me, you know, cause like, you know, your customer is God. You have to treat them like a God, right? Yeah. Although there's so many religions here, so they might not, yeah. might, might not be, you know, applicable for some of the people, but that's how we have this mentality, right? So that reflects into our conversation with the customer and customer support. You know, I believe, you know, Treasure Data right now offers one of the best customer support in this like CDP category, right? <laughs> but at <laughs> the same time, you know, I think the Japanese people are more like high context communication, right? Like you're not direct sometimes, right? And then we're also not good at building processes because we basically work forever, right? We just joined, like my parents joined the company or start a company and you work for like 40 years. Right. right. In this circumstance, you rely on people, not the process. While in a lot of Western com- companies, it's all about building process. And then it's okay if anyone comes in and go, you train and run the process and then scale the business, right? So I needed to learn a lot about that part. And then 
you know, as a CEO right now, trying to, you know, take the, the good parts of both worlds, right? Right. So that has right. been a lot of interesting experience culturally for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how'd you learn the process? Well, I learned a lot by, I would say, hard process. You know, we hired a lot of BPs here. You know, some of them work, some of them not, right? So basically trying to figure out what works and what not. So you've taken um, a step into the CEO role recently. Yeah. How is it different for you than the other roles that you've had? And and what's your kind of bigger reflection on, on kind of the way you need to lead? Yeah. I think what's interesting about my career, this company is we actually sold the company one time. So we exited. So it was like a $700 million exit. Uh -huh. And then after 18 months, I guess it's a, you know, founder cycle, but, uh, we actually quit the company one time. And then this new owner actually wanted to have a founder coming back and run the company again. Uh -huh. And uh, I was chief technology officer for the first 10 years. And then Hiro was a CEO, but Hiro got four kids. So he's like, okay, I cannot do CEO anymore, right? <laughs> I want to prioritize more on the private life. And I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I really want to do the CEO job, right? The reason why is if you look at a lot of software industry, best product doesn't always win. Best right. marketing and sales engine always win, right? Our biggest competitor uh, in the sense is like um, Salesforce and Mark Benioff has its own like magical sense of marketing and sales. Right. Right. But if you look at, you know, I don't know if you use Salesforce CRM, I mean, it loads really slowly, you know, the, your mobile app doesn't load, right? So I don't think uh -huh. it's the best product, I would say. I mean, security is world class, but usability is not there, but it's the number one CRM, right? He built right. this like gigantic sales and marketing engine. Now, I believe we have the best product in the world, but you know, that has to marry together with best sales and marketing engine to become right. the number one provider in the market. So that part I was really interested in. And I'm always type of the person where, and I want more accountability and responsibility. Right. So, yeah. so how are you, how are you going to, uh, um, how are you going to develop that in, in house? Is yeah. that in process now? The marketing yeah, and branding? There's no perfect CEOs, right? And uh, I also have to admit, I'm like 37. If you look at like other SaaS companies CEO, probably 20 years older than me, right? If I go to CEO conference, I'm probably the only one who's in 30s and probably only Asian. I'm like, okay, I'm a little different, right? But, you know, the only thing I can do is, you know, becoming better like every day, right? Well, you know, we look for as a, we look for four characteristics in CEOs uh, and I wonder which one of these kind of resonates with you most. Uh, we, we, we measure integrity uh, we measure responsibility in the sense of, you know, leaving the world a better place. We, we measure forgiveness, you know, and the ability to kind of forgive others and, and not blame 
uh, and then compassion, and that's more like the side of empathy, like no. uh, being able to empathize with others. Um, right. You know, uh, how how do those four characteristics fit within your world and, and your experience as a leader so far? Yeah, well, I am very responsible for my result. Right? Yes. No excuse ever, right? I mean, that's what I, who I am. I probably lack some empathy because I'm uh-huh. very performance and result driven. That has uh-huh. been a consistent feedback for me as a CEO. <laughs> Areas yeah. of improvement, but that's who I am. Right? Yeah. But then, you know, I think peacetime when we were around 2020 and 21, where stock market is really good, I guess people wanted more empathetic CEO. Now it's all time. Right. So I think people are looking for more decisive, wartime CEO. And yep. uh, that's, that's, that's more like who I am, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So, well, with the recent it's shifting gears a little bit, uh, do you have any thoughts on the SPV uh, collapse in Silicon Valley and how that's been reverberating through your industry? Yeah, I can't share a lot of details, but they were our main bank. <laughs> right. Wow. So, so you guys I, had to weather I, through I, that. Yes. And they have been a great partner in the last 12 years. Right. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I guess opening up that accounts as a startup was really hard. So they really contributed to this like a startup ecosystem in Silicon Valley. Right. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I still remember last week, you know, I had a all hands company, all hands at 7 a.m. And I had a media interview around nine and I got this like um, news about Silicon Valley Bank. And I talked with CFO. It's like, OK, what do you think about this? And my CFO, that is like, because we have to take this action right now because we don't know Silicon Valley is going to Valley Bank gonna exist tomorrow. I was right. like, really? But then he experienced some of the downtime as a CFO before. So I was like, okay, let's take immediate actions. And it was best timing because we had a board meeting too. So we were really busy on that too. But it also turned out opening up the um, you know business account usually takes a couple of days. But we yeah. wanted to open up as quick as possible and we did it and we initiated the wire and like, okay, I, I, yeah, we still were living in a drama or like SF at that day, you know? Wow. Well, you won't, you won't forget that day nope. in your business career. Yep. Um, wow. That's uh do you think it's going to have a, uh, an ongoing effect uh, in the rest of the community in Silicon Valley, or do you think that people's nerves are a little bit now calmed down since the government is backing yeah. uh, deposits? So some of our finance uh, department stuff actually go to Silicon Valley Bank uh, on site. I think, ironically speaking, the bank is the safest place ever in the world right now because government yeah. is back. Right? That's right. Uh-huh. If you actually move the money to other place, there will be some danger. But people are doing it ironically, right? So 
a lot of this also comes from a little bit of people's confusion, rumor, like social emotions, emotions, right? Which is not, you know, I would say logical, but I can understand, right? And as a business, what you can do is just, you know, reducing the risk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, it could be the same one of the safest banks in the world today. Um, yeah. Maybe we could go make deposits. I guess we're not allowed to, but. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's hundred percent back. If you go to yeah. other banks, only two hundred fifty k is protected, right? That's right. That's right. Well, Kaz, I just want to thank you so much for giving me your your time. I want to respect your time and I appreciate you speaking into. Um, Return on Character podcast and wishing you every success out there. Thank you very much for having me.